Let's stand together for the reading of our gospel. The Holy Gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, according to St. John, the 16th chapter, beginning at the 29th verse. Glory to you, Lord Christ. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise you, Lord Christ. Come now, Holy Spirit, we pray. Come and overrule and overwhelm as we turn to the Word of God. We pray that Jesus would be exalted. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would so work here, overruling and overwhelming my mouth and my words, that what is said is of and from and by you. And that which we hear is of and from and by you. Use this word to exalt Jesus, to change us, to glorify yourself. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. There's a line of thinking in the Christian world which seems to proclaim that if you believe in Jesus, nothing bad will ever happen to you. Come on, there is. There's books published. They seem to proclaim that on their television shows and in their books and in their radio broadcasts and podcasts and every other sense of form of communication that if you are a good believer in Jesus, that your life is just going to be all ice cream bubbles and chocolate badminton with Jerry Orbach. It's not true. Clearly it's not true. And so, you know, if you follow this line of thinking when... When uh, trouble hits you square in the face, when, when you get punched in the face with a Money Mayweather left hook, then you start to realize one of three things. You either uh, bury your head in the sand and pretend it isn't happening, continuing to claim that because I believe in Jesus, nothing bad is happening. That's sort of this Pollyanna-ish Christian faith. Or the other end of the spectrum is you throw your hands up and say a a couple of things. You say either, well, because this bad stuff is happening, that means something is lacking in my faith, and so you kind of quit, or you redouble your effort, which seems to go contrary to the gospel of grace. Or you think, well, you know, all this bad stuff is happening, and so God must not be powerful enough to triumph over it, so I'm just going to quit altogether. And you bury your your head in the sand in a completely different way. But when you get punched in the face with the reality that in this life there is trouble, if you face it, recognizing and remembering that that Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, then you can face it with what I would call Christian realism, recognizing the truth that in this world there will be tribulation, that any time a believer in Jesus tries to live in the power of the Holy Spirit, a life of active obedience, a life of trust, 
a life lived to exalt Jesus, a life lived to proclaim his gospel. Anytime someone tries to do that in the power of the Holy Spirit, there will be some level of discomfort, trouble, perhaps suffering. In Christian realism, you're not surprised by that, but you're also not discouraged by that. Because Jesus says in that very same sentence, take heart, I have overcome the world. So rather than bury our heads in the sand and and pretend it's not happening, rather than throw our hands up in frustration and disbelief and walk away, we hold the road, the narrow road, trusting in Jesus, the one who's overcome the world. Now, as the book of Acts unfolds, the apostles, those who, who sat around with Jesus and heard those words coming out of his mouth, who, who, in, who took that truth into themselves, the apostles and the earliest church had to experience the truth that in this life there will be tribulation, but that Jesus has overcome. The apostles learned both sides of that equation. We've seen this before with uh, some minor oppression and persecution, with some mob violence. And here in Acts chapter 12, we see it become sort of systematized, legalized. But we understand from Acts chapter 12, we understand that Jesus has come over the world, that God does triumph over tragedy. His unstoppable plan marches on. After spending a few chapters, 8, 9, 10, and 11, after spending those few chapters detailing the spread of the gospel and the church beyond the city of Jerusalem, as St. Luke turns to what we call chapter 12, he returns to the city of Jerusalem itself. And there in Jerusalem, the church suffers tragedy. But in the midst of that tragedy, the church enjoys triumph. Herod Agrippa, we're told by Luke, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. This, this Herod is Herod Agrippa, the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the Herod ruling when Jesus was born. This grandson of Herod the Great, Herod Agrippa, was, like his grandfather, a political animal. He was uh, uh, owed his power to, to Rome and to the emperors in Rome. As a young man, Herod had been sent to the city of Rome for his education. And there he, uh, he came to be friends with two men who would later become Roman emperors. There in Rome, Herod Agrippa became friends first with a man named or nicknamed Caligula. Caligula became an emperor. He was absolutely crazy. But it was good for Herod Agrippa to be his friend because that's how he got power. He was also friends with Claudius. And so as a result of his, uh, Herod Agrippa's political machinations, as a, as a result of his personal relationships, he had considerable power and authority, ruling over a region close to the size of Herod the Great. But being a political animal and owing his power and authority to Rome, Herod had to do two difficult things simultaneously. First thing that he had to do was keep Rome happy. If you owe your power and your position and your authority to an individual, the emperor, you better make sure the emperor is happy with you and your job performance so that you can remain in power, right? So Herod Agrippa had to make sure that there was peace in Judea so that tax money would continue to flow back to Rome. 
But he also had to, in order to keep peace, keep the Jewish people and their leaders, which were sometimes a difficult crowd, happy as well. Difficult because the interests of Rome did not always keep the Jewish people happy, and the interests of the Jewish people did not always keep Rome happy. And so Herod Agrippa was in something that we might refer to as a pickle. There was one thing, however, that both Rome and the leaders of the Jewish people could agree upon. And that one thing was this. Any minority group that might upset the apple cart, that might disrupt the peace, that might stop the flow of tax money and result in military uh, intervention by the Roman Empire, any minority group that might do that must be destroyed. And during Herod's brief reign from A.D. 41 to 44, the primary minority group that threatened the status quo was the earliest church. And so it's for political reasons here in Acts chapter 12, we read that that Herod Agrippa killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. This is the, the first tragedy of Acts chapter 12. Herod executed James in what was very likely a politically motivated event, an act. In an effort to please the majority of the population, the Jewish people, uh, in an effort to keep their leaders happy, to keep peace, it seems as though Herod Agrippa adopted a policy of attacking the leaders of the church. Cut off the head and the body may die. Luke doesn't give us many details as to what exactly happened to James. We just know that he was executed. And having received an attaboy from the Jewish people, Herod had Peter arrested in order to do the same thing. Tragedy upon tragedy here. Peter was arrested, and, and here we see that he's under such divine, or under such heavy guard, that there was, outside of divine intervention, zero chance that he would make it out alive. In one fell swoop, there was the very real possibility that the church would lose two of its apostolic leaders. James, in fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy that he would indeed drink of his cup, died a martyr. And Peter was about to do the same thing. So what does the church do when faced with tragedy? What do they do here? They've, James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, has been executed. Peter is in prison. Do they go and, and mount up a, an army? Do they lay siege to the prison and, and try to rescue him? Maybe they think that Peter will be able to tunnel his way out, like, like uh, Andy and Shawshank Redemption. What, what, what is to happen? What are they to do? Maybe they just let him rot in jail. You know, move on. It's a lost cause. Throw up your hands and, and walk away. That's not at all what the church does, as the church responds to tragedy with prayer. I. Howard Marshall, in his commentary on this passage, calls verse 5 the essential lesson of the entire chapter. That Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. In response to the tragedy, in response to the, the death of James, in response to the impending doom of Peter, the church joined together and appealed to God through earnest prayer. And the church's turning to prayer in a time of tragedy shouldn't surprise us. Uh, St. Luke has heavily emphasized throughout the course of the book of Acts 
the, the church's commitment to prayer and its practice of prayer. In fact, in chapter 4, we've already seen the church respond to pressure. We've seen the church respond to the possibility of persecution with prayer. And here, they do very much the same thing. St. Luke shows us a church in the book of Acts that in all circumstances, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the church was praying. And so the immediate response to stress, the immediate, immediate response to pressure was prayer. The immediate response to the murder of James and the imprisonment of, of Peter was earnest prayer, fervent prayer, prayer that didn't stop. And just like it did in Acts chapter 4, we must assume that the church prays in recognition of God's sovereignty. The church prays in recognition that only God can take care of the affliction of the moment. Prayer is, in the words of theologian David Wells, rebellion. He says this, David Wells says this about petitionary prayer. What then is the nature of petitionary prayer? It is, in essence, rebellion against the world in its fallenness. The absolute and undying refusal to accept as normal what is pervasively abnormal. It is, in this, its negative aspect, the refusal of every agenda, every scheme, every interpretation that is at odds with the norm as originally established by God. The, the church gathers to pray in rebellion against that which Herod Agrippa is doing, refusing to accept it. You have murdered one of our own. You've imprisoned another with the implication and the desire to cut his head off as well. And we will pray to the sovereign God of the universe that he undoes what you are doing. That's prayer. It's rebellion to the world system, rebellion against the world that brings tribulation to Christians trusting that God, the creator of all that is, is sovereign even over the tragedies. In recognizing that God is sovereign, the church recognizes that God is at work even when it hurts, even in the middle of the bad and the ugly. And it recognizes that nothing will occur, nothing can occur without God allowing it to occur. And so here's the church Rebellion against Herod Agrippa. This political act of prayer is absolutely so important. It's saying that, Agrippa, you don't have the right to determine the terms of our life. Even more to the point, Agrippa, you don't get the last word. God gets the last word. And the church is on its knees in prayer. Now, we can't always understand why God allows some things, like James' murder, for example, and why God stops other things. We, we know how this story goes. Peter is delivered. And while we can't always understand why God allows some things and stops other things, we can know, we can trust that all the time God is interested. All the time God is involved. All the time God is active within the lives of his followers in Jesus and in his church. Even in the bad and the ugly, God is good. And so when tragedies occur, it isn't because God doesn't love us. The cross of Jesus puts the lie to that line of thinking. We recognize that through prayer, 
God often changes us. Perhaps in the midst of this particular tragedy, the the murder of James, the impending trial and execution of Peter, God is teaching his people to, to seek his face, to trust him, even when life appears to be brutal, nasty, and short. And so Jesus' church prays. It prays for God's sovereign will to be done. It prays for Jesus to be exalted. It prays for God's comfort at peace. It prays in rebellion against the world that things will be different. It prayed in Acts chapter 12, I think we can assume, for God to triumph over tragedy, for God to deliver Peter. And God did, and God does. God triumphs over tragedy here in this particular chapter, Acts chapter 12, on three levels. First, God does triumph over tragedy in the murder of James. In no way do I want to downplay the pain of this unjust death. In no way do I want to give trite answers or so-called Sunday school answers that don't give full weight to the depth of loss. James, as a follower of Jesus, as a, as a servant leader in his earliest church, was murdered because he followed Jesus. But in the midst of this, however, we do recognize the truth of the gospel. Jesus has overcome the world. Jesus has overcome death. Remember from our gospel reading this morning, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus told his disciples, James would have heard this, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Later in Matthew chapter 16, again, James would hear, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Here at the blade of an executioner's sword, could it be that James, in losing his life for Christ, found life? In that, God triumphed. Even in the murder of James, as James gave up his life for the cause of Christ, Christ the conqueror even of death. The second level of of God's triumph is found in the rescue of Peter, I would really encourage you all, because we haven't had the time to cover all of the chapter in detail this morning, to go home and read all of the chapter in detail. The, the rescue of Peter is, is a delightful story of, of humor and irony and impossibility. It's better than any of the nonsense that comes out of Hollywood these days, and so you would really enjoy this. Now, Peter is in a hopeless situation. It was the night before his trial which would most likely lead to his execution. He was guarded by a rotation of four squads of soldiers, each squad having four soldiers. And these four squads would rotate every three hours so that they were always fresh, always had their eyes open, unlike some of us in here this morning. Like, US, like Ulysses Everett McGill and his friends Pete and Delmar trapped in a barn surrounded by a posse looking for them because they jumped out of jail, Peter was in a tight spot and his situation was pretty near hopeless. And yet, thank you, thank you, one person got my old brother, where art thou? And yet, while the church prayed, an angel came, rescued Peter. The chains dropped off. 
And all he had to do was walk out. God triumphed over tragedy. God triumphed over the possibility of tragedy in Peter's life in Acts 12. And the third level of God's triumph here is found in verse 24. The word of God increased and multiplied. You see, once again, we're confronted with the truth that God's plan to spread his kingdom through Jesus is unstoppable. And the low-grade persecution of threats and attempts to suppress found in chapter 4 blossomed into a mob stoning Stephen in chapter 7, which itself escalated into Herod Agrippa using his political position and authority to kill the church by killing its leaders. And yet, all of these efforts were thwarted by God as he triumphed over tragedy. Remember what uh, Gamaliel, the rabbi, said back in Acts chapter 5. If this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Here we have Herod Agrippa trying to overthrow this plan of God. And what we see in the reversal of fortune from the beginning of Acts 12 to the end of Acts 12 is that Herod Agrippa's plans were undertaken by the power of man and they came to nothing. But the gospel is God's plan. It is by the will of God, and it triumphs over tragedy. The chapter of 12, it, it begins with the execution of James. And Herod Agrippa was in power, seemingly triumphant, and Peter was imprisoned. Chapter 12 ends with Herod dead and eaten by worms. Peter free, and the gospel being proclaimed and God's kingdom in Jesus growing and growing and growing and growing. God triumphs over tragedy, and his unstoppable plan marches on. We've seen this multiple times throughout the book of Acts. We will continue to see it as we step through the book of Acts. We ought not be surprised at attempts to oppress, suppress, or eliminate the gospel and its spread, and yet it never can quite do it. In fact, uh, through history, the church has grown most uh, numerically and expansively under the threat of persecution than when there was perfect freedom in a culture. Such attempts to suppress and oppress can be social, cultural, economic, political. And yet, in the midst of it, we can trust that God is in control. We can trust that while tragedy may indeed be suffered, it will occur. God can and will ultimately triumph over it. That's the same in the first century as it is today. Nothing's really changed, only the faces. So what are we to do in the midst of this? What are we to do? Knowing that the church has been given a job, make disciples, knowing that the church has been given a job to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, see people believe and join in building the kingdom, what is the church to do? The first thing is, as the church in Acts chapter 12, we see the church is to pray earnestly. Prayer needs to be a part of our lives as individuals, and it needs to be a part of our life corporately at Emmanuel. In the midst of the good, the bad, and the ugly, in all times, God's people in Jesus Christ are called to pray, to rebel against, to refuse to accept the fallenness of the world. 
We gather at 9.40 a.m. over in the children's building on Sundays to do just that, to pray. We have opportunities in midweek, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday to do just that, to pray. Is it 8.10 in the morning? We have net groups to do just that, to pray. We cannot, in the year 2017, miss the importance of prayer. The second thing to do is God's church is, is rest in God's sovereignty. God will triumph. That's just the truth of the matter. If you read the entirety of the book, all 66 of its books, uh, you will find that, that God always wins in the end. I've read this book numerous times, not as many as I'd like, but it always ends the same. <laughs> Praise the Lord for that, right? This isn't one of those, uh, those, those books where when I was a kid, you got to choose your, the next step, right? If you, if you do this, uh, go to, if, if Lassie doesn't save Timmy, go to page 17. If Lassie does save Timmy, go to page 34. That's not how the Bible works, folks. God will triumph. And, and though God's triumph may not be as immediate as it is in Acts chapter 12, we may not see our enemies get eaten by worms. We might be James and not Peter. We can rest knowing that God's plan will not be stopped. His kingdom will grow. His kingdom also will come. And when it comes, so will his justice. This gives us the courage to stay the course. It gives us the courage and the power of the Holy Spirit to trust and to pray, and as the old song goes, to obey. True tragedy can, and it does occur. But God triumphs over tragedy, and his unstoppable plan marches on. I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.